0: So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, as we'll be in our study together. And also, I do want to give a disclaimer again this week that this does have content that's pertaining more towards adults, and so if you have children watching, I'll leave that uh, choice up to you. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are working in the midst of these very challenging times, Lord, we don't want to get frustrated, it's easy to get frustrated, and just as we sang that you reign over it all, so we know that you are the one that's in charge, we do ask that you would stir us to greater fellowship, that you would stir us to take time to be in relationship with one another as believers. And as we study your word together right now as a church family, God, we ask that You would speak to us, that we would see the tremendous value of your sacrifice upon the cross, Jesus, of what it is that your blood was shed for us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that we desire is that these live streams would be interactive. We have a ministry team and pastors that are live right now to be able to minister to you and chat with you. So would you take a moment right now to greet one another, say hello to one another through the chats and the comments, but also I'd like you to do this. service is to put down a verse that God has been speaking to you this week. Put in the reference so that we can edify and encourage one another as you've been seeking the Lord and studying the word together. I remember a very uh, special day in my life when I was 16 uh, years old. I had learned to play the guitar and didn't have a very nice guitar. And for those of you that play the guitar, you know that it's worth investing in a nice guitar. It's easier to play. It's easier to press down the the strings. My mom, she had gotten a small inheritance from my great-aunt Bertha. My my great-aunt Bertha never had children of her own. My mom took care of her some, and she was given a thousand dollars by my great-aunt Bertha in her will when she passed away. And mom decided to take me to the music store and to buy me a guitar. And she bought me a Taylor guitar, and it was at a time where Taylor was fairly new, this brand of guitars, and was really making quality guitars, now, for me growing up, God always provided everything that, that we needed. We were not wealthy by any means, and mom didn't often have extra money to be able to spend upon herself. There's a lot of things that she could have gone out and bought for herself with that $1,000. But instead, she decided to buy me a guitar. And that guitar is dear to me. More than 25 years later, I look at that guitar and I see the gift that my mom offered in that. that. That guitar was bought at a great price. It has more value than you could put on it monetarily. What we're going to study is all built upon in 1 Corinthians 6, the tremendous, undescribable gift of Jesus upon the cross that he bought us, that he purchased us with his blood so that we could be his bride, so that we could be his sons and we could be his daughters. There's gonna be three exhortations that come from our text, and there's gonna be the exhortation to live in biblical accountability, to be a witness before believers, to live in sexual integrity. But if you only hear the exhortations, you're gonna miss the heart of God these exhortations are rooted in the gospel. They're rooted in the fact that you're loved by God, that he gave his son to die on the cross for you. We realize this tremendous love, this tremendous price that was paid, and we respond to it by saying, I want to live in biblical accountability. I want to be a witness unto believers. I I want to live in sexual integrity. My prayer for some time now, but especially during this season of COVID, is that God would wake us up to his love. Maybe you remember when you first got saved. I do. And I was so aware of God's love for me. I was so aware of what Jesus had done for me, that I was a sinner, that I had a hard heart towards God, but yet God wanted everything to do with me. And I pray for all of us as believers and also unbelievers that there would be an awakening to God's love. There would be a a realization of this value of the blood of Jesus to where my life does now not belong to me, but it belongs to the Lord. So I'm going to live for his glory. I'm going to live for his glory by being accountable. I'm going to live for his glory by desiring to be a witness. I'm going to live for his glory in sexual integrity. I would imagine that there's some of you that are like, ah, another message on sexual integrity. Another message on biblical accountability. I'm gonna check out. I'm not a very good witness. I don't wanna be exhorted or challenged. And I would encourage you, don't focus on the exhortation, but focus on the motivation. Focus upon the blood of Jesus. Our key verse is verse 20. We'll work our way there the scripture declares to us, for we were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's truly live for his glory. Verse one, dare any of you have a matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Our first focus point is live in biblical accountability. Paul loves this church in Corinth. He wants to set things right. He wants to set things straight. There's so much unhealth and disorder in the church of Corinth. We saw that a man was sleeping with his stepmother last week. And now we find that believers are so divided with each other inside of the church of Corinth that they begin to fight with one another to the point where now they're suing each other In court. You've got believers bringing matters before unbelievers. And Paul says, how dare any of you do this? If you've got a matter against one another, why are you going to the unrighteous instead of going to saints and going to believers? Yes, there's going to be disagreements that happen and wrongs that are committed between believers. And what are we to do in that situation? We're trying to work it out one-on-one, if we're not able to, then we should go to the church and allow the church to help us walk through that disagreement so that there doesn't have to be lawsuits taken to the courts and Christ's name, his testimony, being shamed amongst unbelievers where people think the wrong thing of Jesus because of our fighting. So in verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matter? This is intense when you stop and think about it. Eternity, what's heaven going to be like? A lot of times people think heaven's going to be boring. But we look at creation, and God, as the creator, He designed the universe, He designed all things. Prior to sin entering into the world. Adam and Eve knew sin for a moment without, or excuse me, they knew work without sin. For us now, we only know work with sin being involved. But when we get to heaven, God's going to have things for us to do, glorified work. We're going to rule and reign with Christ during the millennial kingdom. And here it's declared to us in scripture, do you not know the saints will judge the world. You probably haven't stopped and considered that too much, but you're going to rule and reign with Christ. This is the first of six do you not know statements. Paul is reminding the church of Corinth what you know. He's already taught them that they're going to judge the world. The point here in verse 2 is if they're going to judge the world, then they are equipped to be able to judge these much smaller matters that are here and now that arise in the church. In verse 3, Do you not know that you will judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Apparently, in eternity, in heaven, we're going to have the opportunity to judge angels. To judge angels. So this then raises another question of angels must have the ability of free will where they have to be held accountable. To bring judgment for us to have to judge them, then they must have the opportunity to exercise a free will. I don't know how all of that works, but these are weighty things in heaven that we're going to judge the world and we're going to judge angels. So verse 4, if then you have judgments concerning <clears throat> things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? So this is our first focus point is, as we are to live in biblical accountability, as we're to value being part of the body, being part of a local church, being committed to fellowship, so that when wrongs do happen and sin takes place, and it will, that we can come to the church and our brothers and sisters in Christ can sit down with the two offended parties and be able to sort it out and bring judgment. Now, remember, judgment here is not anything to do with salvation or condemnation, but to be able to say, here's where there was right, here's where there was wrong, here's a way to be able to go forward. Are we open to living in this kind of biblical accountability? Do we see that this is part of the function of a healthy church? Or do we simply see a church as something that we consume? Something that we just come and we take what we want and we take what we like, but not necessarily that we have to live in biblical accountability. That we would have the humility to allow a disagreement to be brought to other brothers and sisters in Christ brought to elders and pastors where they could come and help us to be able to sort it out. Our flesh, our sinful nature, does not want or desire biblical accountability, but we all need it. We all need accountability. Our flesh, our sin, is alive and well, and we are not immune or above sinning and making mistakes and hurting others and things get messy because of sin, and God wants to use the body of Christ to be able to help sort us out. Paul's clear here that all who are saved are equipped to be able to do this. And yes, pastors and elders serve in this function, but every believer is going to have this opportunity in eternity to judge angels and to bring judgment over the world. So how much more so is in the here and the now. Paul's language is very strong in verse 5. It says, I say this to your shame. Is it not so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? Paul's like, this is to your shame. This is evidence of the lack of health inside of the church of Corinth. Is there any wise person, Any wise person that could come and be able to help sort out these divisions instead of you going to court with one another. Some of you, this might be very pertinent to you right now, is you find yourself in a disagreement with another believer to the point where you're filing a lawsuit. And I would encourage you to really take heed to God's word to contact the church office. We're meeting with people. Sit down with the offended parties. See if there can be an agreement that's done. This is not God saying that he's not for justice. He is for justice. It's just how this justice is implemented, that business is taken care of by the church instead of it being brought before a judge. Here's the reason why. If you're wondering why does the church handle this instead of a judge, verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Second focus point is live as a witness to unbelievers. The reason that God doesn't want believers suing each other is because this is a terrible witness to those that don't know Christ as their Savior. When believers are fighting with each other, oftentimes we forget that the world is watching. So play this out. You've got two people that are Christians, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They live here in Colorado Springs. The wrong has been committed, maybe by both parties. It's escalated now to the point where there's a lawsuit, and here's the judge that has to sort this out, and he knows that both are believers. Maybe both are in fellowship inside of the same church, and it's a bad witness to that unbelieving judge, that unbelieving jury. Remember, what's the motivation for this? What's the motivation that we would say, yes, I want to live in biblical accountability. Yes, I want to care about the witness to unbelievers. The motivation is because we're bought with a price. The motivation is because Jesus loved us enough to die for our sins to adopt us as his sons and daughters, to then we go, I want my life to be different. There should be something different about the way that we treat each other as believers than the way that unbelievers treat each other. And unfortunately, at times, the church gets a bad rap for treating each other worse than we treat unbelievers. So we want to be committed to being a witness. We want to be committed to the reality that unbelievers are watching our lives. And and this brings us to a biblical truth even outside of lawsuits. Unbelievers are watching. At work, unbelievers are watching. Neighbors are are watching. Family members that don't know Christ are, are watching. And I think especially now in the midst of this COVID that has taken place, is they're going, how is my believer neighbor going to respond to this? How's my co-worker who professes Christ responding to this? And that's why it's important for us to hold on to the joy of the Lord. It's important for us to be confident in who he is and to not live in fear. That witness to unbelievers. In verse 7, now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go against That you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? This is difficult to swallow. Paul's saying it would be better to accept wrong, to suffer loss, to be cheated, before you take a disagreement between believers before an unbeliever. Am I willing to be cheated, wronged, for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to take a loss for the sake of the gospel? Jesus was. Jesus was willing to take on wrong that he didn't commit. He was willing for his reputation to be stolen, to be cheated. He was willing to go to the cross to pay that sacrifice for us. Because if we don't see the magnitude of what Jesus has done on the cross, we're going to hold on to our money. We're going to hold on to our rights. We're going to hold on to say, I'm not willing to be cheated. I'm not willing to accept wrong that has been handed to me in the midst of this difficult situation. I do want to say this is... The shame upon us as believers if we know this truth and we use this to our advantage to defraud another believer. What do I mean? If we know, okay, believers aren't supposed to sue believers, so I'm going to go ahead and do something wrong and steal and cheat another believer and then try to use this to my advantage to say, well, wait a second, you can't take me to court. Then we have really misunderstood the heart of God So don't ever use verse 7 to try to manipulate another believer. verse 8, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So they're in this place where they're calloused towards how they treat other believers, and they wrong them, they cheat them, and they do it to their brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul then gives a really strong challenge to this type of attitude. If you can With a hard heart, go and wrong other believers and not have the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. What does Paul mean by this? There's a difference between struggling with sin and these specific sins and then a lifestyle of unrepentance inside of these sins. Let me try to explain. If someone is caught in adultery, if the Spirit of God lives inside of them, there should be conviction and there should be repentance and remorse and godly sorrow. And that's evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit lives inside of them. The Holy Spirit's not going to allow us to be comfortable inside of sin. So a Christian that does fall into adultery and they come and they say, can God forgive me? Can God restore my marriage? I'm so sorry that I've done this. I'm ready to accept responsibility for my actions and rebuild trust. And Absolutely. Man, you're the child of God. The conviction is the evidence that you are God's child. But then you have someone who claims to be a believer that's also in adultery and they say, hey, there's no problem with me being in adultery. I'm gonna continue in adultery. I'm unrepentant in this. Only God knows if someone is truly saved, they've surrendered their heart to Christ for salvation. But my encouragement to that person would be to read these verses and say, you need to examine Your salvation. You need to look at your heart to see if you've really trusted Christ because if Christ lives inside of you, you're not going to be comfortable in adultery. You're not going to be able to justify this sin in your life. And that goes for all areas of sin. So please don't hear this if you struggle with sin and going, man, maybe I'm not the child of God. But if you're in a place where you walk in unrepentant sin and you flippantly believe the gospel, Charles Spurgeon would refer that to as a sham conversion. Maybe you've only said the words, but you've not trusted Christ in your heart. Romans 10:9 says to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. Sometimes the distance between heaven and hell is the distance between our head and our heart to really surrender our heart and life to Christ. This is not a works-based gospel. This is not saying that you have to do works to be saved, but what it is declaring is that works are an evidence of our salvation. If you have a peach tree, it's going to produce peaches, and if someone's born again by the Spirit of God, there's going to be fruit in their lives, not perfection, but fruit in their lives, not to earn or deserve salvation, but but evidence of the fact that Christ has come into their lives. Paul is so strong on this. He's saying, guys, if you can rob and steal from each other and then take each other to court before unbelievers and not feel convicted about it, do you not know that the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? There should be conviction in your life over these actions that you're you're taking. In verse 11, and such were some of you, and I love this, But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. In the church of Corinth, there was drunkards, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, covetous, revilers, extortioners that had gotten saved. And such were some of you, past tense. God has saved you and rescued you out of these sins. And what a testimony of what Christ has done in our lives. Think about who we were before we knew Christ our Savior, and he has taken us out of those sins. He's forgiven us of those sins and has transformed and is transforming our lives. What happened when we trusted Christ? You're washed by the blood of Jesus you're sanctified. We should know this. We're, we're sanctified, which means we're set apart for his purposes. Our, our life no longer belongs to us, and he's molding us, and he's shaping us more into the image of his son. That's his goal. That's his purpose is each day, each month, each year. He wants us to be more like himself. He's sanctifying us. He's set us apart for his purpose, and he's justified us in the name of the Lord Jesus justification is unlike sanctification, sanctification's a process. Justification is done the moment we receive Christ as our savior, and it's to be declared righteous, declared righteous in the name of Jesus. In his character and his nature, it's a legal term, we have been declared righteous by the spirit of God through the work of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul is not talking here about sinful things. He's going to go on in just a moment to address sexual immorality. Here he's talking about things that we have liberty to do as a believer. For example, you've got liberty as a believer to play video games. You've got liberty as believer to watch Netflix and Amazon Prime and watch movies as, as long as they're glorifying to the Lord. As believers, we have freedom to engage in sports and exercise and all of these different things that God has given us freedom in. But as we're exercising these liberties, we need to ask the question, is this helpful And is it causing me to lead to bondage? Is it helpful? And is it causing me to lead to to bondage? And if the answer is no, it's not helpful. I'm so focused on the news, I have liberty to read the news, but I'm just consuming news all of the time, and it's bringing me up to a place of fear, and it's bringing me to a place of, of bondage, then even though we have liberty to read the news, we may want to back it off, back it off to a level that it is helpful. And it's not bringing us into bondage. Exercise can easily become an idol in and of itself. Well, I gotta exercise, I, I gotta exercise. And before you know it, we're worshiping exercise to a point where it's not helpful and it brings us into to bondage. You can do video games to a point where you're neglecting your family and it's not helpful and it's, it's bringing you into to bondage. And so that's a, a question that we need to be asking with the liberties that God has given to us. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Paul begins to focus on the body. The body what we do with this physical body that God has given to us. And God says that he's created food for our stomach and our stomach for food, but those are going to be destroyed. Our body's going to be destroyed. This is just a temporary tent. Food's going to be uh, destroyed, but God is going to raise our bodies unto everlasting life. Goes on to say, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So third focus point is live in sexual integrity. For his glory, live in sexual integrity. Because Jesus has paid this tremendous price of his blood being shed upon the cross, we respond by saying my body is meant to serve the Lord. God created this physical body not for sexual immorality but for service unto the Lord. That's the message that's being declared in verse 13. We are created by God. We are designed by God. He engineered us in our mother's womb so that with our body, we could glorify the Lord. And sexual immorality is is all kinds of sexual sin that's outside of God's design, which is sex between a man and a woman inside of the commitment of marriage. Could be in our heart, our thoughts, our actions, Our body, this body, was not created for sexual immorality. It was created to live for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The best thing for this body is to have Jesus be the Lord, to let Jesus be the Lord of my eyes, to let Jesus be the Lord of my ears, to allow him to be the Lord of my hands and my feet. And this doesn't mean if you allow Jesus to be the Lord in, in your body that you won't ever get sick or, or wrestle with some type of disease, but it's speaking of the abundant life that God desires to give us. That that abundant life is found when with our body we allow him to be Lord. And God raised and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What a promise jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection meaning we're going to rise in a similar manner so this body's going to pass away but god's going to raise us up to have a glorified body we're going to be risen in similar fashion as christ as we finish chapter six this is some of the strongest teaching in scripture for sexual integrity it really gets to the heart of why we would live in sexual integrity. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. As Paul is going over all of these things saying, do you not know? He says, do you not know that you are members of Christ? We say this kind of flippantly and quickly that we're the body of Christ, but think about that for just a moment. It means that we are joined to Christ, we are members with him. The illustration of this is a body how, how close the hand is in the body, the ear is in the body, the nose is is in the body and we're members of christ we 're connected to Christ when we trust him for salvation so if we engage in sexual sin, we're joining Christ to that sexual sin. We're joining Christ to that harlot. In Corinth, it was a wickedly sexually perversed society. Many false gods that condoned and encouraged sexual sin in the act of worshiping these idols, these, these false gods. People that didn't know Christ as their savior would often engage in these temple prostitutes. And apparently it had found its way inside of the church. The church is believers, but yet they're living in sexual sin and they're joining Christ to the sexual sin. Pornography, when a believer looks at pornography, they're joining Christ to the pornography. When a believer decides to walk in adultery, they're linking Christ to that adultery. When a believer decides to have sex before marriage, they're, they're linking Christ to that sexual sin. This speaks of the unconditional love of God that he does not depart from us when we sin. It hurts our fellowship with him, but he doesn't leave us or forsake us when we engage in different types of sin. And this is true of sexual sin, but it's true of everything else as well. He, he is with us. We are with him. We are joined to him when we enter into covetousness, when we enter into anger, when we enter into bitterness. We're taking him into those sins. In verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. The world, unbelievers say, well, what's the big deal about sex? It's just two bodies. But God says, no, it's the joining of souls. Adam and Eve, the first married couple, the two became one flesh. The sexual union is far more than just a physical experience. It's two becoming one flesh. To the point where God sees a married couple and he sees one. So when we think about sexual integrity, we understand I am joining Christ to this sin, but also when two people are joined together in sex, they become one flesh whether they like it or not. So when you have sex with someone who's not your spouse, you're being joined to them in a way that God desires for marriage. But there's not the commitment of marriage you walk away from that relationship, how do you tear two people apart? When you're one flesh, how do you separate one flesh? It's obvious. It brings a tremendous amount of pain. Young people, if you're asking the question, why do we not live together before we're married? Well, because it's virtually impossible to live together and not have sex. I haven't met a couple that's living together that is not having sex. And if you start to have sex with each other before marriage, you're actually robbing each other, you're defrauding each other. So really allow the truth of God's scripture to to set in to say, man, sex is more than two bodies, it's the joining of, of one flesh, and it's gonna bring great destruction if we're not committed to each other inside of marriage. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So we're members with Christ, But also, our spirit is joined with Christ's spirit. These are amazing truths for us to understand the union that we have with Christ. I'm one spirit with Christ. My spirit is joined to to his spirit and the fellowship that we have with Jesus. So here's the exhortation when it comes to sexual integrity flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. What's God's answer to purity in this area is run, 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 run from sexual sin. Don't stand there and go, Well, I have the strength to be able to overcome sexual sin. Flee, run for your life. Joseph is such a great example for us in the book of Genesis. Here he's a young man who's sold by his brothers to be a slave in Egypt. That's a good cause for discouragement if he would have allowed it to set in. He gets purchased by Potiphar. Potiphar's wife is lusting and longing for Joseph and tempting him every day. And he's saying no to this sexual temptation. There's one day where he's in Potiphar's house, no one else is around, and she solicits Joseph once again. And Joseph runs for his life. He, he gets out of the temptation. She grabs his coat and holds on to his coat and accuses him of rape. Joseph did the right thing. We contrast that with David, who's a man after God's own heart. He gets comfortable in his life. Instead of going out to fight the battles, he sends Joab to go out and fight the battle, and he stays home, and he sleeps in. He gets out on his porch and he looks out, and there's this beautiful woman taking a bath, Bathsheba. Unfortunate name. Bathsheba taking a bath. And David, in that moment, he could have chosen to flee from sexual immorality. He could have chosen to go back in, but instead, he allows himself to lust in his heart and his mind, and he sins for Bathsheba and commits adultery. In his hard heart, he eventually has her husband, Uriah, killed. So he commits adultery and he commits murder. Oftentimes, sexual sin leads to more sin. It leads to a cover up. It leads to more and more damage. There will be sexual temptation, no matter your age. And God's answer is to flee. When something pops up on the internet... Close it off. Use wisdom on how and when you're using the internet. Probably not a good idea at 12, 1 in the morning when everyone else is asleep to be surfing the internet. Greater source of temptation. I think it's wise to have accountability with the internet to where your spouse, accountability partners, can know what you're looking online. Maybe it's With a person at work, it's with one of your friends and your thoughts are starting to go in this sinful direction. God wants us to flee. He wants us to flee sexual immorality. And he tells us why. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Because sex is the joining of two souls. When we sin sexually, we're actually destroying our. Our own body, and we're destroying their body. We have seen this play out with sexually transmitted diseases. As sex has been used outside of God's design, there has been a physical destruction that actually takes place upon the body. God says there's something special about sex. He's designed it to bring edification between a husband and wife, a man and woman, inside of the commitment of marriage. When we use it outside, of his design, there's a destruction that takes place in our bodies and in our souls. But we really get to the heart of the why here at the end of the chapter, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You're not your own. In the Old Testament, the temple was so revered that God's presence would be placed inside of the temple. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, God's glory showed up there in such a powerful way that priests were not able to minister. One day a year, one man, the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go into God's presence. Now when Christ died upon the cross for believers, the moment we know Christ our Savior, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's presence doesn't dwell in a temple any longer, in a physical building. it dwells inside of us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the reason why we don't sue other believers. This is the reason why we want to be a witness to unbelievers. This is the reason why we don't want to engage in sexual sin is because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what has been your motivation for sexual integrity? Is it directed towards your spouse? Is it directed towards, I don't want a sexually transmitted disease? And those are valid reasons, but there's a much greater reason, and that's because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's because our life doesn't belong to us. For some of you that are single, you may be saying, I'm choosing sexual integrity for my future spouse, which is great, but what if God doesn't allow you to get married? Are you still going to walk in sexual integrity? Yes, because you're the temple of your, the Holy Spirit. What if your, your spouse has sinned against you in this area and committed adultery and divorced you, and now you're saying, well, what's the point? Well, the point is you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's the motivation. In verse 20, for you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. We're bought at a price. And what was that price? It was the blood of Jesus. Our sin was so great and so grave that the only thing that could save us and bring us into right relationship with God was the blood of Jesus. The unfolding message of the Bible is that we're sinners that need a Savior to shed his blood for us. If you look at Adam and Eve's initial sin, original sin, what did it take? It took the killing of an innocent animal. Blood was shed to provide a covering. Passover, an innocent lamb is slain. The blood put upon the door of the home so that judgment would would pass over. Each animal sacrifice in Leviticus shows the need for blood in order to cover sin. But animal sacrifice could only cover sin and Jesus takes away our sin by his grace. And the amazing truth of the gospel is as we trust Christ for salvation, our sins are forgiven and we belong to him. That's a done deal. We then get to respond to that free gift. We get to respond to that love and say, Jesus, you're, you're the Lord of my life. And I'm gonna live this out by the way I treat believers. I'm gonna live this out by trying to be a witness to unbelievers. I'm gonna live this out by realizing my body doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the Lord, so I'm gonna choose to walk in sexual integrity. Words cannot describe how amazing it is that Jesus loves us enough to die upon the cross, that the Father loves us enough to send his Son to die upon the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross should not stop impacting us. As believers, we should continue to walk in the awe that Jesus would sacrifice himself for us. Just like as I think back to when I was 16 and my mom purchased me that guitar for $1,000. That happened a long time ago, but I become more appreciative of that gift and that sacrifice that she made as I get older. And I realize, wow, There's so many other things she could have done with that. And hopefully as we walk with Christ, that the reality of what Jesus has done for us would hit us in a greater way. We would appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus more today than we did when we were saved. More 10 years from now than we do at this particular moment and respond to his goodness and celebrate his goodness. So let's apply God's word. If you're at a place where you're at odds with another believer, try to work it out with them. And if you can't, get the help of other believers. But dismiss this idea that you're going to sue another believer. May we respond by saying, Lord, help me to be a witness. I know that unbelievers are watching my life. Help my life to glorify you. Holy Spirit, would you fill me so that I could be a witness to unbelievers? Would your supernatural power come into my life? that I could be a witness. And then this area of of sexual integrity, God is a gracious God and he brings forgiveness and restoration if we choose to humble ourselves and repent. And if there's pornography or there's things in our hearts and our minds, our thought life needs to be cleared out, if we're engaging in sexual sin, right now, repent, turn to the Lord and allow him to Forgive you, but also give you a path forward. Allow the motivation to be the blood of Jesus. Allow the power to be the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you remind us of your great sacrifice? Would you remind us of how much you love us? The price that was paid. Your blood that was shed so freely. May the weight and the glory and the substance of your sacrifice Hit us where we want to respond to your mercy. God, would you heal relationships between believers? Would there be a response that says, Yeah, I'm not going to take this to court, but I'm going to bring this before other believers to see a work of reconciliation? Father, would you forgive us when we're not a good witness, when we're not a good testimony to you? Would you empower us to be a witness to those unbelievers? May they see a difference in our lives. And would you help us in this way of sexual integrity? May we understand in a deeper way that we are members with you, Jesus, that we're joined to your spirit, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we're bought with a price. So God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.